This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Mike is stuck at an airport in Charlotte, so this is your friendly neighborhood editor, Andy, jumping in to bring you the preview on this episode. On this episode, Mike and Josh got the chance to talk with Bob White, CEO of the Daimler Group, a commercial real estate developer and builder here in Columbus. Early on in the show, they asked Bob about how Bob's father ended up starting the Daimler Group, and here's what he had to say. He was with a company uh, at the time called Banning and Pickett, um, and uh, you know they, they were doing some corporate office. Uh, they had started to shift their focus into uh, hotel development. There were the Pickett Suite hotels that were you guys uh, were, were not born yet at the time, but, but uh, so the company sort of shifted its focus into more of the hospitality hotel world, and that um, that didn't interest him all that much. And, and he saw kind of a niche market to get a little more nimble. Uh, we've always kind of believed as a company in, in bringing some of the um, stakeholders that, that maybe have interest in our buildings, if they're a tenant in the building. Oftentimes, we'd like to bring um, some of the principles of that business into the ownership of real estate, have them benefit from some of the value they're creating with us. And so this idea of, of, of creating a kind of nimble company that, that would have a construction arm, a development arm, a leasing arm, and create some joint venture partnership opportunities for, for others uh, to, to help create value was kind of of interest to him. Later, Bob talked about the challenges of the past few years in the real estate development market and how that's impacted his team. Yeah, one of the hardest things in the last two years, three years, has, has been just that, it, trying to, to get certainty around what we're doing because mm-hmm. everything was, was uh, moving at, at pretty rapid right. paces. Uh, you know, our availability of, of product, uh, physical product to build was, was unknown to us at, at mm-hmm. many times. The, the pricing, therefore, was was super volatile, moving all over the place. Um, availability of labor was was challenging. Interest rates were doubling, almost tripling uh, during that same time period. So it's gotten really challenging to to kind of manage all that. So to try to insulate yourself from that risk, you could always just add more contingency into your into your project. But when you do that, it just drives up your overall project cost, uh, which makes it then not we're still subject to market conditions. And so we can't just arbitrarily throw more contingency dollars at a project. It won't pencil. It won't, right. it won't perform financially. They wrapped up the show asking how he balances a challenging day job with his family life at home. It takes a great team. And that, and that's, you know, I have an amazing team at mm-hmm. home uh, with my wife and, and kids and then um, have an amazing team at work. And, and, you know, none of us can, can accomplish all these things on our own. It's, sure. You know, and so it, it, um, it becomes easier when you put, you know, at work, when you put a lot of the right people in the right positions and they can handle a lot of that. And, um, and I can focus my time on, on bigger relationship uh, development with, with our clients, with the community, uh, a lot of our stakeholders, um, really enjoy the process of bringing in investors into our projects and, and we, and they're happy and, and we're happy. And, and uh, so we do like to try to align all those interests. As always, we want to say thanks so much for tuning into the show and supporting Conquering Columbus. We really hope you enjoy this interview. And if you want to hear more just like this, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. All right, that's it for me. Let's get to the interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here, and we've got Josh here today wearing both Michigan and Ohio State gear. So I'm going to call him out on that one on the air. It's disgusting. Dude, big 30 for you yesterday. How was the birthday? Huh? I, I'm not going to let you deflect from the fact that you are representing two rivals. Is it weird because you've, you've technically been over 30 years old for like 20 years now? Yeah. Well, I was born at 40. That is true. And we, so we make- I'm technically <laughs> like 70. Right we, now. we haven't introduced our guest yet. We make fun of Mike because he has the tendencies and uh, life habits of a 55-year-old, but he's had them since he's been 12. So. I fall asleep at 10 o'clock. I wake up at 6. Nothing I, wrong with that. You know, it's he's just, been growing a beard since fourth grade. So. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? 
But uh, so today on our show, joining us today is Bob White. He's the CEO of the Daimler Group. And the Daimler Group is a commercial real estate developer and builder based right here in Columbus for over 40 years. Bob has spent the last 25 years with the Daimler Group, making his way up from marketing representative to CEO. So we're excited to be talking with him today about his journey to CEO, the history of the Daimler Group, and where they're heading in the future. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Bob. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. Yeah. There's a ton of places we could start, but the first one I have is when you got hired as a marketing representative, were you in your head thinking like, I'm going to be the CEO someday? Or did that even cross your mind? Or was it just kind of like, I'm just going to do whatever's going on and we'll see how this goes? So my, my trajectory probably um, was not the completely typical one. My um, my father had started the company, so I had, okay, had a little, little leg up in my interview process, which was pretty abrupt and, and not too uh, lengthy. So yeah. I had uh, I had interned with the company through high school and through college, uh, started on the construction side of things, was in mm-hmm. the out in the field as a general laborer. Um, so I was, you know, cleaning the job sites, carrying a lot of drywall doors, a lot of other things, uh, just all general labor on the site, which is a high school kid and a college kid getting up at, you know, 6 a.m. and being on the job site by 637 uh, was a little bit of a rude awakening, but enjoyed that experience uh, and look back on it, uh, you know, pretty favorably now at the time, maybe wasn't quite as excited about it. But then I sort of moved into the office uh, later in college and, and started helping out mainly in the leasing marketing side of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, so we develop a lot of commercial real estate uh, at the time, developed a lot of corporate office space, not exclusively, but that was certainly our product type that we focused the most on. And so um, just kind of came in on on the leasing side of the business. Uh, We call it the marketing side, but the leasing side of the business. So we'd have vacant space in our buildings. We'd need to go transact Mm -hmm. and and find companies to to lease that space back from us. And and so that was my primary role kind of starting out. Um, Didn't necessarily have visions of of where that might lead. Just knew that that was on the kind of the deal creation side of Mm -hmm. our business, which has more risk associated with it. It's more more commission-based. And so just knew that one, I was willing to take some risk, but certainly didn't foresee exactly what might transpire. So did you grow up in the business? Like, were you, I guess the question I have is like, as a kid, were you like, yeah, this is where I want to work and I just enjoy it. But I also have some pre-interview knowledge, which is, I know you played baseball in college. So there's like, can we touch on that and like, talk about like your course through growing up to getting out of college and deciding, Hey, I'm going to go work for the family business. Yeah. I was born in Columbus, Ohio, born Mm -hmm. and raised here, uh, Riverside hospital and, um, class of 1974. And, uh, and so, uh, born and raised here, grew up in upper Arlington. You know, my father worked for a company for probably 10 years or so until 1983, when he founded Daimler, uh, worked for another developer in town and, it wasn't like he came home every day and we talked shop or, mm-hmm. or even then once he took the leap and the risk of starting the company, it just wasn't something we talked a lot about. He didn't bring a lot of business home with him. So, right. uh, you know, my, my childhood was, was, um, you know, pretty typical, I guess, in, in lots of ways, but, uh, not that it was super focused on family business. And at the time, you know, he founded the company, so don't know that he had any ideas that it may or may not be a sort of a family business. It wasn't a multi-generational thing already. So did he give um, you insight, not to interrupt this, this would be a great flow, but like to speak on that moment, did he give you insight into why he decided to make that jump and start the business in the first place? Yeah. So he, he was with a company uh, at the time called Banning and Pickett, and uh, they were doing some corporate office. Uh, they had started to shift their focus into uh, hotel development. There were the Pickett Suite hotels that were, you guys uh, were, were not born yet at the time, but, but uh, so the company sort of shifted 
shifted its focus into more of the hospitality hotel world. And that um, didn't interest him all that much. And, and he saw kind of a niche market to get a little more nimble. We've always kind of believed as a company in bringing some of the um, stakeholders that, that maybe have interest in our buildings. If they're a tenant in the building, oftentimes we'd like to bring um, some of the principles of that business into the ownership of real estate, have them benefit from some of the value they're creating with us. And so this idea of, of creating a kind of nimble company that, that would have a construction arm, a development arm, a leasing arm, and create some joint venture partnership opportunities for others uh, to, to help create value was kind of of interest to him. So so yeah, he he uh, took that leap and there was two other gentlemen that came with him uh, from that company when they started the company. So there's three of them when they started. And had you started to enter the business, like there's kind of this chasm or chasm, however you pronounce that word, between being kind of nitty gritty development company and just getting job by job to becoming a really sustainable long-term long lasting organization that obviously what you guys are today. And so do you look back and do you remember the times where it was like, okay, we're just kind of barely getting by versus, okay, now we're really flourishing and we got something here. Great question. Um, you know, so I don't really, because, uh, what in 1983, I was nine years old. Uh, and so again, wasn't really active, certainly in, in any discussions relative to the business. And, and by the time I started in 1997, fortunately, we were kind of established and, and had some repeat business and had grown to maybe 30 people or so in terms of employees. So some of that initial risk and initial growth had already kind of occurred. And we've come a long way since then. But at that time, you know, no, I, I wasn't entering the business at a time when we were really trying to figure out our next move and, and how we're going to keep the doors open and that kind of stuff. You talked about earlier about being a general laborer in the beginning. So obviously, a family and a father who valued learning things the hard way, I'd have to assume, and starting at the bottom and, and working your way to the top. That's definitely uh, true. I was thinking about, you know, some of the questions about just, you know, early childhood and stuff. My father did not like us sitting around uh, hmm. or sleeping in or not being outside and being active. We definitely did not have video games. That was something we just didn't have. He, he wasn't uh, kind of a supportive of that. And, and that wasn't quite the way it is today back then. But we were just a... Um, a real sports-oriented family, for one. And so I've got a younger brother, uh, three years younger than me, and we um, we constantly were outside playing sports. And, and my dad was out there with us, too. And he definitely valued um, getting up, you know, early, not sleeping until noon, and and would just give us relentless grief if we if we tried to do that. Burning daylight. That's right. Yeah. And then you get to college and you decide to play baseball. Uh, yeah. So I... Um, you know, again, sports have been a big part of, of my childhood. Uh, played football, basketball, and baseball uh, kind of through high school and um, had an opportunity to play college baseball. Played at uh, University of Dayton my freshman year and then transferred uh, to Ohio University. Um, played there for three years. My wife today, my girlfriend at the time, was at Ohio University. So that may have had a small role in me uh, transferring sure, there. Sure. So. Okay. So you wrap up with baseball. You go from the internships to the marketing representative role. I'm curious, what are the highlights from that time period? Like that grinding, grinding it out on the marketing or sales side of the business and like, what were the ups and downs? What were the things that stand out to you as you look back on that time frame? Yeah. So a couple of things. Growing up, I wasn't an overly outgoing child, I wouldn't say. I mean, I, I hopefully it wasn't too awkward, but it, it wasn't um, like I was naturally this sales, you know, kid mm -hmm. that was super comfortable in a, in a sales position. But luckily that sort of evolved and, and gained more comfort. And I think like anything you're trying to sell, the more knowledge you end up gaining around that product or that idea that you're selling, uh, the more confident you become with it. And early on, I remember, you know, not knowing anything about what, what we were doing and what I was selling. And I knew what was in our kind of printed marketing brochures. I knew kind of the physical features of the spaces I was trying to lease. I knew our rental rate and there would inevitably be questions though that people would ask that I didn't know the answer to. And I just mm -hmm. remember 
frequently saying, hey, let me get back to you on that. I'll, right. I'll, I'll check into that. So that was definitely different. Believe it or not, when I first started, cell phones did not exist. And so it was unique to go to a showing. We would I'd go to a showing to lease try to lease space. Um, and they'd be certainly going to look at other buildings with competitors. And if somebody was running late, they had really no means of alerting me to that. So I remember standing in our buildings at times for an extra hour, just waiting to see if someone was going to show up. And then sometimes eventually just leaving because sure. I realized that maybe something had changed in their schedule or, you know, whatever might've happened. So that was certainly unique. But yeah. Just leasing our product just gave me one, the beginnings of a lot of relationships in the industry, just working through a lot of the brokers, most of the tenants that we lease space to at the time and, and maybe still now are represented by commercial real estate brokers. So getting to know those folks in that industry and then just the connectivity in, in the city as well. One of the really exciting things about our business is we touch a lot of different types of companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so the interaction between not only our consultants, you know, we hire architects, engineers, lawyers, bankers, you know, all types of, of folks to complete a transaction. But mm -hmm. we also then work with a lot of companies to have them you know, be occupants in our building. So, And talk a little bit about all the aspects that the business covers. You mentioned earlier you split out construction versus development, which intrigued me the way that you worded that. So I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're scoping the locations and you're going through and you're creating the design aspects, then you're executing and then you're holding, or are you then selling thereafter? Totally depends on that product type, the type of eventual maybe lease that we get put in place. Commercial real estate value is driven through the occupancy and the revenue it creates. And so, you know, a lot of times the creditworthiness of the tenant in the space, the length of lease term they're willing to, to uh, sign up for, the amount they're willing to pay in rent has everything to do with the value creation. And so at times it makes sense for us to hold those assets and put permanent financing in place perhaps and get off the risk profile of the construction loan that we may have used to build the building and kind of get in a non-recourse situation where we're taking less risk, but it decide to hold the asset. Other times it makes sense to monetize that, sell it to a third party investor, pull back our equity that we uh, you know put into the project plus profits recycle that, go to another project. But, you know, so at Daimler, we've got, you know, an ideal project for us. We get to utilize all the services we have, which means we can locate that site, uh, you know, hire all the consultants we need to design a, a project, get municipal approvals, put together a joint venture partnership to, to fund the equity necessary for the project and, and secure bank financing for it, and then build it, use our construction company to build the project use our leasing team to, to lease the project. Uh, so we kind of generate our fee revenues through those activities, but also put our ownership dollars to work in the capacity of being an owner of real estate. It's exciting. It, it does take a long time though for that to all develop. So from, from idea to mm -hmm. figuring out whether we're going to hold it or sell it can be years. Yeah. And it's kind of got to be this flywheel aspect to it where, you know, you're building these relationships, with these corporate entities, whether it's like a Starbucks, I got to assume, or some of these larger corporations. And then as you're getting more and more buildings, you're kind of partnering up with them. You're getting the creditworthiness of those clients. They're already telling you where they want the next location. And you just, I mean, things just kind of take off from there, I got to imagine. Yeah. The, you know, there are those types of, of relationships and we have a few of those, but more in the corporate office sector or, or the healthcare sector, you know, if somebody's going to relocate their office space and make a, you know, 10 year commitment, they may not need to utilize our services for yet another decade or, or beyond. We do a little bit of retail development, more like the Starbucks example, where, yeah, they are stamping those out on, on you know, multiple sites around the region. And, and if you develop those relationships, that's a nice kind of repeat business. Mm -hmm. Ours is a little more sort of niche and a little more, uh, you know, need to try to customize every transaction, which does add some mm -hmm. heartache and some complexity. It seems to be like with this type of go-to-market strategy and kind of everything that goes into this, that reputation would be extremely important. Yeah. Right. Like 
couple bad deals and then it's going to be really tough to win more. So I'm curious about some of the biggest challenges you've had and how you guys were able to overcome those and kind of what you did to make sure that you still maintain, like uh, maybe, maybe you guys have never messed up a single project, right? <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm curious about, you know, in the times where maybe something went wrong, like how do you go about addressing that and making sure that the client's taken care of and what does that look like? Yeah. So I'd say two things. One, there is a lot of opportunity for things to go awry during that course of idea all the way through to completion. I mean, in a two, three year span of, of getting something to stabilization, interest rates can change. Pandemics can hit. There, there's, we, we were, every, no. yeah, all, yeah, all, all the time we're learning, maybe there's no th- chance. things we didn't even think about before that, right. that, that could come up. So the whole supply chain falls apart because, yeah. because of a pandemic and interest rates going up. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I think, you know, what we sort of believe is kind of the cornerstone of a good project is that it is sort of truly a win, win, win kind of scenario. I mean, if, if we attempt to take advantage of a company or something in the way that, that we are the sole beneficiary of that project, that's not going to bode well for reputation for future business. Mm-hmm. You're right. It, it does take a lot of trust and reputation to continue this kind of success because every project is sort of customized and people have choices as to who they can work with. And we try to start from that perspective of making sure that everybody's sort of treated fairly and, and that there's a trust factor there. We try to set up our, our projects in a financial way too, whereby we have a little bit of insulation. You can't plan for you know, 2008, 2009, you can't plan for Mm -hmm. 2020 with pandemic, but in normal courses of action, we try not to be over leveraged. Uh, So we always have believed in putting real cash equity into our projects. A lot of our development competitors, I guess, depending on the product type they develop and depending on the lending environments can create some equity through maybe increased land value versus what they paid for it. Mm -hmm. They can forego some some fees uh, and use that as, as equity, but they're not potentially writing actual cash equity checks. We, right. We've always believed in putting real equity in our projects and trying not to over leverage them. So it creates a little bit of insulation from um, problem times that could arise. So you could technically get a project off the ground if you wanted through entire leverage without putting any equity into something. Right now, you could not know, but at various market cycles, and at, you know, I talk with my father about times back in the seventies, eighties. Uh, <laughs> you know, their interest rates were incredibly high at times, but they could create you know almost a hundred percent leveraged kind of transactions, and it's it a lot more interesting and creative how you figure out the ownership percentages when you're just borrowing a hundred percent of it. Then right. you can almost divvy up the ownership however, <clears throat> however you choose, right? Because nobody's putting anything in. But uh, those days really are not here. But there are different ways to structure the equity. And again, in good market times, going back a, a couple of few years ago, uh, especially in the multifamily apartment development world, which is one of the product sectors that was able to kind of garner significant value, create over cost. Mm-hmm. Um, the institutional market willing to invest dollars in buying these and what they're willing to pay and the lower yields they're willing to accept beyond what the developer kind of underwrote the deal to be created this this huge you know profitability that yes you could if you're underwriting your project to only put in or, or to borrow 80% of the you know eventual fair market value if that if you can show that that value is high enough in theory you could borrow 100% of your project costs but after um, 2008 2009 most banks will not allow that 
Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Yeah, that's fair. Is your degree <laughs> in finance? Uh, my degree was in finance, yes. Makes a lot of sense. And so the strategy- Although of the, most everything I learned was on the job, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, mean, right. I don't know about, I don't know. Yeah, I, they don't, they don't te- teach much about 100% leverage, I don't think, in, in no, finance. No, true. So the product strategy over time, though, to the extent that you can kind of sum it up and boil it down, how has that changed? I mean, we see so much of this mixed-use commercial and residential mm-hmm. on top going on now. And uh, you were talking about the healthcare projects and things. So how, how have you guys decided to strategically position yourself within the development market? So, you know, we pretty intentionally have exposure into a lot of those different product types. So we, we are still active in the industrial development uh, world, developing warehouses and, and um, not a lot of manufacturing, but a lot of, a lot of warehouse projects active in healthcare, certainly still active in corporate office, a little bit of retail and diving into more so the, the multifamily sector. So, you know, we, we intentionally kind of like that diversification. It allows us in varying market cycles to, to still stay pretty active. And the other way we sort of diversify our, our risk profile is because we're a construction company and a development company, we can dial up or down the amount of development that we go generate on our own or the amount of third-party construction work we just go do for others uh, as a third-party contractor uh, on a fee basis. And so we can keep our operating company busy doing just construction. It's a better model when we can pair it with you know our, our development projects and build for ourselves and build for third-party clients. And so having variety and diversification of kind of that blend of construction and development, and then also amongst the product types allows us to try to avoid some of the pitfalls of just being too isolated into one, one market segment. And that separation divide, is that between, you know, I'm swinging the hammers versus I'm designing, financing, and managing the future leasing? Is that how you divide between your construction and development? Yeah, so we're, we're all one company from an employment standpoint. Everybody's employed by Daimler, and Daimler is a development company that does charge for development services, but predominantly our um, income is generated from construction management fees. We don't self-perform any trade work, so we don't employ any brick masons or steel erectors or anyone doing physical construction. We're doing project management. We've got project engineers. We've got estimators. Um, we've got site superintendents. We're supervising the, the construction on site. So we're a construction management firm, which is really where almost all the other names you would think of in construction have kind of gone towards. There's not carrying all that overhead, all that labor, right. all that equipment. It became a little more difficult in um, specifically in 2008, 2009. So, so a lot of people have shifted more to that construction management. I'm approach. curious then like when you go to like, is it all just individual contractors? Are there companies that hire out contractors for construction? And now I'm kind of, my curiosity has been sure. peaked. And no, I'm so wondering. We, yeah, we'll, 
create a set of building plans and specifications mm-hmm. with an architect, an engineer, a civil yep. engineer, a structural engineer, get that whole set of plans, you know, completed. We then as a general contractor or construction manager will send that out to bid to mm-hmm. to the subcontracting market. So we'll want ideally to get, you know, three bids or more in right. every in every trade category. So we want three electric bids, we want three plumbing bids, we want three HVC bids. And so then we'll we'll take all those in, we will evaluate those for scope to make sure they've got everything covered, evaluate them for, you know, price obviously is is a big factor, <laughs> but uh, labor availability has become a much bigger topic these days too. So then we'll award that project to that subcontractor in each trade group and mm-hmm. then, you know, all assembled that kind of makes up our construction team and our construction project. And so you've been around this your whole life, so I got to imagine the complexity doesn't overwhelm you or isn't so mysterious to you. But for me, when I drive by a building, for example, and I'm watching like mechanical and electrical and plumbing and architectural and them trying to keep the floors level while I'm looking at like a landscape that's rolling, it just blows my mind that people can even make buildings. Yeah. <laughs> When you yeah. were when you were getting into that and learning everything, like how could you wrap your head and how does a team even today manage all of those different moving pieces? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I was younger, you know, I was pretty focused on just trying to lease office space, and and so yeah, I knew enough, I guess, about all those other things we just talked about, but it really wasn't my focus, and so I was able to sort of compartmentalize what I was doing and, and not get overwhelmed. My you know continued growth through the company, now all those things are on my mind at all times. And so it, that, that does get mm-hmm. a, a little overwhelming at times to, to just think of all that. But we've got a great team uh, mm-hmm. who manages that process. So we've got a kind of pre-construction department that takes the architects, engineers to create those plans. We kind of manage that design process. We don't just hire them and say, hey, we want a 100,000 square foot building. Just get back to us when you're done. We, we manage, actively manage that process. We pull our construction team and our estimating team into that process as well. Because the worst thing in our in our world is, you know, our surprises. And so what we want to know is predictability. We want to know that the project that we're contemplating, that we're underwriting with a pro forma, that all of our financing is based upon, that all of our equity returns that we're sort of promising to investors, that only all works if that set of plans that we create mm-hmm. ends up matching the, the hard cost environment that we've put on paper in our project pro forma with our bank and everything else. So surprises are not good in our world. So it's a pretty actively managed process. And we do pride ourselves on thinking we do that a little bit differently and a little bit better than, mm-hmm. than our competitors. I'd imagine you also have to work in some plan for surprises as well into that portfolio, right? Like, hey, what's the upside risk? What's the downside risk? How much percentage are we talking like potential upside, potential downside? If things go perfectly, then here we are, right? right? But assuming that we see some natural risk, this is what we're projecting. Yeah, one of the hardest things in the last two years, three years has been just that, it, it, trying to get certainty around what we're doing because mm-hmm. everything was moving at, at pretty rapid right. paces. Uh, you know, our availability of physical product to build was unknown to us at, at mm-hmm. many times. The pricing, therefore, was super volatile, moving all over the place. Availability of labor was challenging. Interest rates were doubling, almost tripling during that same time period. So yeah, it's gotten really challenging to to kind of manage all that. So to try to insulate yourself from that risk you could always just add more contingency into your project. But when you do that, it just drives up your overall project cost. We're still subject to market conditions. And so we can't just arbitrarily throw more contingency dollars at a project. It won't pencil. It won't, right. it, it won't perform financially. So it's been a fun few years. I can imagine. 
And what does the team look like today? Like, I mean, you've gotten to the point where this engine is rolling and you have this phenomenal reputation and projects. I don't even know how many going on at once. How big is the team? And then what are the goals going forward? Like, how big do you vision the company over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Today, we're 51 employees. And uh, that's comprised of probably 15 site superintendents, 10 project managers, the lion's share of our staff is in the construction side of the business, then, you know, probably 15 or so of us in the development, marketing, accounting kind of world. And so there's a lot of opportunity out there still, even in this uncertain market, there's a lot of construction going on in, in central Ohio. Uh, and so we try to be purposeful in, in the projects we pursue and, and also meaning we're, we're not looking to grow just for growth's sake. We're not mm-hmm. looking to go, you know, pick up X number of total hundreds of millions of dollars of volume a year, and then have to ramp up our staff uh, accordingly. It's it's a tough labor market to go find staff right now. So we said at 35 people, we probably wouldn't grow that much, but we're at 51. So, but but I I don't see us attempting to double that in size or anything uh, in the future. What about your personal goals? Like I'm always curious about a family and an individual that's been able to get to a point where they've they've created such an amazing company and. Like what motivates you on a daily basis? And do you envision yourself being with the company for, this is probably a really political answer, right? Because you can't say you have, I guess, ulterior motivations, but is there anything else outside of this that really keeps you going that you see in your future? It's a great question. And, and I'd say over the first 20 years of my career, my, my focus was more probably on myself and my own successes or my own growth or my own, you know, not that it wasn't about always the company, it always mm-hmm. was, but in the last several years, definitely been able to kind of recognize that I'm no longer just kind of the younger guy and and mm-hmm. uh, and, and it, I do have a responsibility towards the rest of our, our company and, and actually get more excited, more energized today by uh, seeing opportunity for the rest of our associates to, to grow and, and to mm-hmm. create net worth and other things and give more opportunity to others. And, you know, my father definitely instilled a lot of that. When I came in, there were two other gentlemen that were... Um, they were with our firm that were doing leasing. They moved on, allowed a, a huge opportunity for me to step in. And then as my you know career continued to evolve, he absolutely allowed me the freedom and kind of flexibility to, to grow in the mm-hmm. community, to grow in our business, to go, you know, so it's been hard for me because I don't fancy myself as being that old yet, but recognizing it might be getting time to think about, you know, the next generation of leaders in our company and those kinds of things. So uh, definitely foreign to me because I was always more focused on our transactions and mm-hmm. said, you know, thought if we just can execute on on all these deals, uh, we're going to be profitable. Everyone's going to do well. All ships rise. It'll be, it'll be great. Uh, and still certainly sort of think that way. And it's at the end of the day about trying to get these transactions done in, in a meaningful, productive way. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's exciting to think about kind of the next chapter maybe. And I got one question before you jump into another one, Mike. What does work-life balance look like for you? So I've, I've got... Um, Four children. Uh, my wife and I um, live in Upper Arlington still, so we're kind of lifelong residents there. I have a daughter at Ohio State, uh, junior, and a sophomore daughter who's uh, almost 16 uh, with her temps now. So that's that's been fun to see her driving. Uh, and then we have two pretty severely handicapped children. So we have a 19-year-old and a 12-year-old that are at home with us 24-7. We have a lot of nursing help in and out of our house at, at all times. So work-life balance, um, I, I don't know. It, it just every day is... Uh, either uh, definitely focused at work, you know, almost every day and then enjoy certainly our children, our, our home mm-hmm. life. And, uh, but trying to keep it all straight and all balanced is, is not easy. And due to kind of their 
conditions and some of our nursing help and the hours that they work, there's almost no single night that I sleep through the night. So trying to balance all of that when I'm laying awake at night and then thinking about all the things that we just talked about in terms of just what it takes to get a transaction done and the number of things we're trying to do, it can get a little overwhelming. So how do you compartmentalize that during the day? I mean, that's something that we talk about a lot. And so I lead a sales team, right? And sellers, right? They got to compartmentalize things all the time because got this quota over me. I don't know if I'm going to hit my number. Am I going to make my paycheck that I want to make this month? Right. All that stuff. But that seems like a whole different scale of compartmentalization. So I'm curious, like, what do you do? How do you flip the switch? You know, I, I think it takes a great team and that, and that's, you know, I have an amazing team at mm-hmm. home uh, with my wife and, and kids and then um, have an amazing team at work. And, and, you know, none of us can accomplish all these things on our own. It's, sure. uh, you know, and so it becomes easier when you put, you know, at work, when you put a lot of the right people in the right positions and they mm-hmm. can handle a lot of that. And, um, and I can focus my time on, on bigger relationship uh, development with our clients, with the community, uh, mm-hmm. with a lot of our stakeholders. Um, we, really enjoy the process of bringing in investors into our projects. And, and we even more so enjoy when, when it works out well and it works out well for them and, right. and they're happy and, and we're happy. And, and uh, so we do like to try to align all those interests at home. It's um, I, I do similar, I guess, to my dad. I, I try to leave a lot of the work stuff at work and, and not drag a lot of it at home. I don't know how we all do that, but somehow you just sort of figure it out. And, yeah. and uh, there's enough going on at home that, that mm-hmm. I don't, not capable, I guess, of, of, right. of constantly thinking about all of it. So makes sense. Makes sense. I think that's a good place to kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show, Bob and just Josh, you got anything else? That's all I got. So first question is, is, do you have any advice for our listeners? And our listeners, right, they tune into the show because they want to hear how people got to where they are, what made them successful, right? They're typically going to be in the Columbus area, about 95% of them, wide age range, but mm-hmm. that's who we were talking about. Yeah, no, I, I think relative to one Columbus, uh, you know, starting with Columbus, if they're located here, then then I feel like they've, they've made a great choice. And, and Columbus has a lot of things going for it and will continue to for a long period of time. We got great leadership amongst all the kind of municipalities here in, in town and a lot of forward thinking and a lot of efforts from One Columbus and, and the Columbus Partnership and others to advance the city as a whole. So I, I think we're in a great spot as uh, as a region. So good choice for those that, that choose to locate here. We love One Columbus here. They are our primary sponsor. So shout out to One Columbus. Thank Perfect. you for keeping the show going. That's good. That's good. And then, you know, ad- advice um, specific maybe towards real estate. We, we do get a lot of uh, inquiries about, you know, how do I how do I become a developer? How do I get into development? And, and it is a little bit challenging to do, honestly. And and because um, there's only inside of each development company, there's only a handful of people typically that are really focused on that kind of development role. But there are people in finance, there's people in pre-construction management. There's, there's, there's a variety of ways to get kind of integrated into a development company. Advice would be, I guess, uh, try to find a path, whether it's through finance, uh, through working with some of the banks and financial lending institutions, you can get a real good feel for kind of the underwriting of these projects, the project pro forma itself through the lending kind of piece. And you can also meet a lot of people as a potential lender. You know, certainly the, the legal side of things, we need attorneys to uh, to document all these things we try to create. So <laughs> there's there's that pathway. And then the commercial brokerage kind of sales uh, leasing piece of it can be a nice entree into development as well. Great. Well, Bob, that's a great place to head towards our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. So without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a show about entrepreneurs, business leaders around Columbus, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when I first hear it, live uncomfortably, it, uh, 
I can say I oftentimes live uncomfortably as we just summed up kind of what, <laughs> what goes through my mind on most days and the different types of, of things we're trying to manage and all those types of challenges that, that are out there in the world. I know that's not specifically what you mean by the, by mm-hmm. the topic, but it, it does sort of come to mind uh, in terms of living uncomfortably. But I did think a little bit about this question. And I think as it relates to our business and, um, you know, we're naturally kind of an entrepreneurial kind of uh, mm-hmm. kind of business. And we're at times almost starting from scratch on every, every transaction. Every transaction has enough different nuances that it uh, is unique. And so what I don't do enough of, though, in, in self-reflection is you know, we've got a, uh, a general model. We've got um, the way we've kind of done things and it's evolved. No question. It's grown. It's changed. It's certainly been different over, over many years, but um, I probably need to challenge myself more to reinvent some of, some of the things we've, we've done and, and just push outside that comfort zone at times. If there's a fault, then I probably trend towards the conservative nature, mm-hmm. but in a extremely kind of risky and volatile business, right? So, right. but, uh, so it, it depends, I, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I think in self-reflection, I, I could push uh, a little further on some new initiatives. Well, we hope you do. And yeah. thanks so much for joining us, Bob. It's been great talking to you, learning more about the Daimler Group. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. That was Bob White of the Daimler Group. If you want to learn more about the Daimler Group, you can go to daimlergroup.com. That is D-A-I-M-L-E-R Group. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that interview, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. That'll make sure you never miss an interview from us. We appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week.